0: Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Meller, and I'd like to welcome you to this, the final episode of 2018. I'm looking forward to having a couple weeks off, as I'm sure some of you are here, uh, spending some time with family and uh, enjoying the holidays. As I look back over what we've been able to accomplish this year in 2018 with the podcast, I'm really proud and satisfied with uh, the work that we've been able to do, the guests that we've been able to get on the show, and the content we've been able to deliver to you. I also want to thank each of you for tuning in and listening uh, week after week for supporting our show. Uh, it means a lot to uh, get feedback from you, to run into you at meetings, uh, to get your comments sent to me, kind comments always, and uh, that really means a lot to me. I'm looking forward to the new year. We've got some excellent uh, interviews lined up, some of which we've already done, actually, and uh, that we're going to be releasing in January, uh, so stay tuned, and I'm excited for that as well. If you'd like to show your appreciation for the podcast, uh, I'd love for you to go on uh, your podcast app on iTunes, leave us a review, send an episode of the podcast to a friend who maybe doesn't listen to podcasts or isn't into that uh, so we can grow the reach of the podcast and uh, get this out to more orthodontists. And I think that that's something that uh, they would benefit from, not because I'm such a great host, but because we've got such great guests that come on week after week and uh, give generously of their time and their knowledge uh, to share with each of us. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. David Sarver. Dr. Sarver is someone who I've been trying to get on the podcast for a while, someone who really needs no introduction. He's a busy guy, but we were able to carve out some time to have a discussion, which I know you're going to enjoy. We hit on a number of different topics, and rather than belabor the introduction, we'll jump into this interview with Dr. David Sarver after a word from the sponsor of today's episode. We are so happy that OrthoChats is one of our premier sponsors for the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. As you know, providing radical convenience to our patients is becoming a big priority. Online chat is now a basic customer service standard for practices across the country. More millennials are seeking orthodontic care for their kids and competition is growing, so getting to patients faster and stopping the shopping process is more important than ever. How many patients have you missed after you turn off your phone at five o'clock or before you start answering the phone in the morning? What about the weekend? OrthoChats is the world's leading online chat provider for orthodontic practices. They have a team of in-house smile specialists who provide a warm greeting to every potential patient at all hours of the day, 24-7, 365. OrthoChats makes sure that you never miss an opportunity to have a value-building conversation with a potential patient. With almost a million chats of experience, they are experts at collecting information from new patients and getting them connected with your practice. Stop wasting your marketing dollars by sending people to a website that is static and lifeless. Hire OrthoChats today to help capture new patients 24-7. Visit orthochats.com before the end of the month and mention Elevate Orthodontics for $200 off your startup. Thanks again to OrthoChats for your sponsorship of the podcast. Dr. David Sarver received his Bachelor of Science degree in 1973 from Auburn University. He then graduated from the University of Alabama School of Dentistry in 1977. He obtained his postdoctoral master's degree and completed his certification in orthodontics at the University of North Carolina in 1979 and opened his practice in Birmingham in 1979. Dr. Sarver is a diplomat of the American Board of Orthodontics, a member of the Angle Society of Orthodontists, and currently serves as an adjunct professor at both the University of North Carolina and the University of Alabama at Birmingham. In addition to his commitment to his private practice, Dr. Sarver has been very active in research and academic writing. He has authored the orthodontic text Aesthetic Orthodontics and Orthognathic Surgery and co-authored Contemporary Treatment of Dentofacial Deformity. Additionally, Dr. Sarver is co-author of the text Contemporary Orthodontics, the most widely used orthodontic text in the world. He's had the honor of being named to deliver all three of the prestigious Saltzman, Mershon, and Engel lectures at the annual meeting of the American Association of Orthodontists, as well as delivering hundreds of lectures to orthodontists around the world. Dr. Sarver, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Good to be here. Uh, we're excited to have you on the podcast, and I know we've had some requests, uh, from listeners to get you, so I think this is going to be a, a great discussion. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Before we get into maybe a little bit of the meat of our discussion, I know we talked before we, uh, hit record here about the recent passing of Dr. Bill Prophet, and I know that you had the privilege of working closely with him for much of your career. You know, I was a dental student, uh, an undergraduate dental student in North Carolina, and I always looked up to Dr. Prophet and I think we'd be hard-pressed to find an orthodontist who isn't aware of his recent passing. He had such a big influence in our profession. And I'd just be curious if you'd like to share some thoughts about how Dr. prophet influenced the way you practice, or if there's a story or memory that you'd like <laughs> to share with our audience.
1: Well, there are lots of stories, for sure. I think uh, probably the first comment I would make is, is sort of alluding to what you were commenting on, that hardly anybody didn't know him. Uh, Henry Fields and I had a long conversation when we the night after we found out about uh, Prof's passing and we were trying to do the math on it. And we came up with the figure that he had been a, a force in the orthodontic profession for 45 years. And that was, you know, we've been a profession for 120 years. <laughs> so that's pretty significant uh, uh, career and contribution. You know, I found out a uh, fact that his, um, the department of Orthodox at UNC did something to honor him uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, I would say that uh, Prof's two closest friends are contemporaries of his, uh, Jim Ackerman and Ray White. And and Ray sort of goes all the way back to uh, Prof's days at NIH. To make a long story short, it turns out that Prof never uh, served as a junior faculty member anywhere, He, he was a chairman right off the bat. And that fit his personality because he he generally liked to be in charge of things. (laughs) Uh, Henry and I were talking about, you know, the experiences we had working on contemporary orthodontics, that Henry has been on all six editions. I've been on three. But Henry's thought was that, you know, he liked things to be, he would let you play, as we say. But in the end, he ruled. (laughs) Uh, He would would listen to you carefully. And if your argument was good, uh, you could win. Uh, but if it wasn't good, uh, he'd he'd trash you in a second and throw you on the road. So, <laughs> anyway, he was a, a really such a unique individual. I think uh, I've given several memorials, and I've written one for the AJO that will probably be coming out fairly soon, that I summarized that um, Prof was sort of like uh, – I likened him to, and people will be reading this, as, you know, a, a great ship, you know, as it's going through the water. He knew where he's was going all the time you know, he was a very, uh, secure kind of personality and he, he never really, uh, let much ruffle him or deviate him from where he was going. And so, uh, I've been, uh, with him at a number of meetings and he plows through a crowd, you know, and the, you sort of like when the waves, uh, you know, <laughs> break away from him and, People stand in the background, and people are afraid to come talk to him because of his reputation. He was, uh, and he was intellectually intimidating. And but well, as soon as it, you know, sort of like the the wake behind him, you know, it was really forty five years worth. I mean, it's generational. I started Chapel Hill in nineteen seventy seven. I'm not sure what year you were born, <laughs> but how we got to be friends really was um, my first week that I had off, you know, my wife worked for IBM and, uh, I was practicing dentistry on weekends and Thursday nights, uh, just to make a few extra coins and not have debt. And as you know, i discussed a little bit. So, uh, I came into the school, uh, we were on break and everybody was off to home or skiing or whatever. And I didn't have anything to do. Uh, cause a, I didn't have any money and B my wife couldn't go. And see, I figured I would just stay and work and make more money. So I was uh, Monday morning, I got up and I went, well, I don't know what to do. So I went down to UNC and I was walking through the hallway and I passed his office and he looked up and said in prof's voice that we all know so well, Dr. Sarver, school is out <laughs> I, said, I know, Prof, but uh, I don't have anything to do. To explain my situation. And so he knew I'd been a bit of a basketball player. So I said, Blame me, coach. You know, he said, Oh, okay. He turns around and he pulls off his desk about a foot thick stack of reading, which are all the NIH grants that he was to review, all the proposals, and said, Read all these and summarize them for me. <laughs> and I went, Oh, gee, I don't ask for that. But I disappeared in the library for a couple of days, came back and plopped it on his desk. And as I say, you know, I I think that started a long and warm relationship because he realized that I'd actually this dumb redneck would do what he uh, told him to do. (laughs) Uh, So that's kind of how we got started. And then my career started off a little bit rough in that I meant to be a full time academic and chairman and dean and all that sort of thing. And uh, two weeks before I arrived at the University of Alabama, I was notified my job no longer existed. And so, you know, I had two weeks to figure out what I was going to do, uh, which was, you know, set up a practice. And so, you know, I would, uh, you know, ask him about what do I what do I do? And he always had plenty for me to do. So he kept <laughs> me uh, he kept me intellectually engaged. And I did eventually join the faculty the same year. But Anyway. It was, it was just kind of like, I went to him when the times were not so good. The thing about Prof that was unique uh, was he was very so In other words, if you ask him a question, he would never give you an answer. <laughs> he would always ask you a question. In other words, his belief was that you don't learn by having somebody tell you the answer. You learn by determining through uh, thinking uh, how to do whatever you're asking him uh, about. And to the degree that hoping to finish up a new book here fairly soon. But chapter one is titled, Why Did I Write This Book? Well, the truth is, Prof told me to. And the other part of it is that following his mantra is that this uh, whole thing is designed not to tell you how to do orthodontics, how to put brackets on, how to do biomechanics. There's plenty of people who've written much more eloquently than I can on that. But what I'm doing is writing about uh, thinking your way through problems. If you think, Lance, when you go to practice every day, how many decisions do you think you make a day? A thousand, okay? Now, we talk about evidence-based orthotics, of which I'm a big supporter that things should be evidence-based. But think about how many decisions you make a day that if someone asks you why you would go, it uh, just seem like <laughs> a thing to do. You know, look good to me. Yep. Uh, w- we all tend to have to operate um, without going right to the internet or uh, having uh, evidence right on hand. Uh, and so really, it's it's being taught how to think and think clearly. And uh, with his. why am I doing this? My memories of, of working a little bit with Dr. Profit just as
0: an undergraduate dental student were similar. And I think it was People like him, Lyle Johnson, um, some other people that I really looked up to that kind of made me think that orthodox would be a specialty where I would have to think and be intellectually challenged and problem solve in a way that was really attractive to me. Um, And I definitely think that we, you know, that I owe a lot to, uh, you know, these people that that kind of set the bar high and approach things in a way uh, that was rigorous, but that also was very rewarding. I really like that about orthodontics.
1: Well, you know, the thing that uh, Prophet did was, uh, you know, when I was in my orthodontic residency, the big names in orthodontics were practitioners who were very charismatic uh, and had their techniques and those sort of things and and chairmen that were uh, strong personalities that um, had sort of their own things to to sell, so to speak, and uh, you know, profit really sort of put orthodontics out of that era into the scientific era. Uh, and it was remarkable to me how, for example, as an undergraduate, he he would have influence over you just simply by being him.
0: Yeah, he had a big he had a big presence. That's for sure. Yeah, well, there's
1: an aura around him all the time. Absolutely.
0: Well, I want to, before we get into maybe some of the more clinical or, or uh, nitty gritty topics here, I i want to spend a second to discuss kind of where we're at as a profession. I, I know you've spoken on and are considered an expert in smile design, aesthetics and orthodontics. And I think we're at this interesting time where there's this push for you know, a consumer-driven or maybe even consumer-directed orthodontics. Uh, I know you're going to be speaking at an upcoming NewCon Study Club, <laughs> kind of on this very issue. How should we, as orthodontists, kind of view our responsibilities? We're members of this profession. We just talked about setting the bar high and having the standard, but then we're also trying to be responsive to patient desires and, and function in this new landscape, which which we're finding ourselves in.
1: Uh, well, you know, first of all, the meeting that you're talking about, I, I asked him, about four or five times that I told them I didn't want to come because <laughs> it's, it's an uncomfortable topic to me in a lot of ways because it's, it's an emotional issue. Right. Uh, and, and I'm not uh, one to uh, stand up in front of a crowd and express my emotions. We don't have evidence of what's going to happen. <laughs> so there's not a scientific path that we can look at because there's never been anything like this. Uh, there has been in other professions, about six years ago, I was asked by the um, College of Diplomates American Board to talk about uh, what I thought the future of orthodox was. And and I bleached a lot of information out of Chris Benson and out of the ADA and the AAL. And it was really clear six years ago that profession-wise, the issues are that in the past decade, we have graduated one-third more orthodontists than we had at any other time in our history. And so we got more folks coming in. Uh, and then of course, uh, compound that with, uh, the Invisalign phenomenon with our former referral sources now competing with us. We used to compete with each other. Now we compete with the referring dentists and marketing things on television and so forth. Where will that take us? I think, uh, you know, I'm not really clear in my mind where it's going to end up because it's obviously still evolving. But I think that the business, uh, I've always, I wrote a paper years ago uh, about the business and the profession of orthodontics. And at that time, the business of orthodontics was the orthodontic companies. And I was making the case that when I was coming along, you were considered impure if you had anything to do with a corporate entity. And I would counter and did counter with the fact that, you know, that, that's kind of really not smart because if we didn't have companies then we'd all still be doing the angle bracket and bending a lot of wire. You know, uh, companies are there to take, uh, are, are they are to innovate or they're to take innovation from other uh, doctors. You know, and help them create what their vision is of how orthodox ought to be practiced or whatever. So, uh, I said that really that. Uh, well, I can also speak as an expert. They're probably two-thirds of the honoraria that I collect when I lecture, it comes from companies that donate to our meetings. So that was then. You know, if it wasn't for the companies, we wouldn't have CE and we wouldn't have innovation. Uh, Then it sort of morphed into, okay, the companies started marketing uh, their products to the public. And uh, we sort of became marginalized a little bit that, you know, if you buy, if you use this bracket, you'll not only be better, you'll be faster. Yep. Um, with no evidence that that's true. I'm not getting to argument with anybody about that, but, um, some things are faster, some things are not. So we've sort of been drifting that way, uh, for quite a while. Now, other professions, I looked at a model six years ago, of a very successful group optometry practice here in town where, you know they have consolidated practices and and they have it's almost like a law practice you know they have senior partners and they have junior partners and they have uh, you know people just fresh coming in and um what they do is they save a lot of money by having their own lab generate all the lenses or frames for all the people that are in their business or they bought by frames, they don't make those, Uh, but just to make it uh, applicable to us, I mean, you know, I looked at it, and it's really a good model, the only difference is, we don't sell things, you know, I'll have parents ask me, you know, what is your job around here, because I'm one of those guys that, you know, I I go from chair to chair, and I'm sure you do this too, and I'll occasionally sit down and, you know, do something, but it's kind of a a joke, you know, with thereby that parents will go, what what do you do? <laughs> yeah, in my comments, always I think a lot. You know, may not be about anything important, but I'm always thinking, and that what we what our product for sale is probably uh, back to a profit. We were on our last edition uh, on the fifth edition. We were talking about the term diagnosis. What does the term diagnosis mean to you, Lance? When I say diagnosis in orthotics.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that I what I would want my patients or I guess anyone that I cared about would be to have someone who has a wealth of not only knowledge but also experience be able to look at a set of, you know, criteria about a patient and be able to kind of throw out the irrelevant, and then assemble all of the relevant pieces into some kind of coherent picture. That then, and then from there, kind of come up with a plan that that we know has a good chance of success for that sort of situation. So I think there's some objective parts of that, and there's certainly some subjective parts of that. But um, like you mentioned, it's a little bit esoteric. But you know, that's I, I think in my mind, that's like the the whole key of our profession.
1: Well, that's part of the fun of it. I mean, you know, a lot of the things that. Uh, I have become known for, you know, are things that are either glommed off of other professions or made <laughs> up, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. just trying to solve a problem. Yeah. Uh, it, when I was uh, in the 70s being taught how to be an orthodontist, prophet, of course, uh, didn't talk about, you know, brackets and things like he did. He did talk about biomechanics <laughs> and stuff like that. But uh, by and large, our attendings diagnosis was a set of cephalometric numbers and uh, a classification of how your teeth fit. And that was pretty much what, quote, diagnosis was. And, of course, that's changed so much over the years that, you know, you're a young man by my standards and uh, you've of hit the nail on the head that it's, it's really uh, an accumulation of things that we have to process into our heads as to that particular case. How do I individualize uh, these sort of things? And so – Prof and I were talking about diagnosis, and he had asked me the same question. And I said, well, diagnosis, you know, to me really is blah, 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 blah. carried on. And Prof's gift was being able to boil things down. He goes, I said, well, how would you define it, Smarty? And he said, knowing what to do and when to do it. Yep. <laughs> and so when moms, you know, say – uh, what do you do? I said, I know what to do and I know when to do it. <laughs> so I think
0: this really kind of strikes at the heart of kind of this issue that we're talking about, which is that I think a lot of these newer entrants to the orthodontic marketplace are in essence, diminishing or devaluing or eliminating almost this whole concept of diagnosis. There's a product here and you sign up for this product, and it does what it does, and that is supposedly going to be, you know, kind of the wave of the future in terms of uh, consumer-driven, consumer-directed orthodontic care. Um, you know, so I think as practitioners, that you know, that feels, I guess, uh, not good. It feels insulting, perhaps. But the emotional part of it aside, I think is what to do about that. You know, do we do we try to raise our game? Do we try to increase our standards? Or do we try to say, look, maybe there are some compromises, there are some more practical orthodontics that that meet consumer demands, because kind of staying where we are right now feels a little bit like, you know, kind of waiting for something to happen to us.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a good way to put it, because, uh, you know, like all things, uh, there will be uh, several different reactions and models and uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, people recognize, uh, uh, you know, a car business operates with, you know, if they can climb out 3% of what their sales were, that's, that's a good year. Yep. You know, well, we're slightly different from that. And so the business people of the world have all of a sudden woken up to, uh, hey, we need to get in on this. This is my opinion, how it looks. Uh, and then I think it's up to us to, uh, as, Professionals, to it's going to happen. You know, as the way I look at it, uh, that there that we're going to be much more business, uh, not oriented, but business um, dominated. Uh, there's certainly the things that we can't do. We can't react to uh, a company spending two hundred million dollars a year for external market. I mean, to direct marketing to customers can't match that. Okay, but what we can do is. Uh, be candid and forthright with patients who uh, come in and, and offer them their options. I'm not saying don't unsell them. If they come in and say, I want, I want Visline." my general answer is, what do you want it to do? You know, <laughs> a very profit kind of thing. Yeah. And they'll go, I want a nicer smile. And I say, well, then let's talk about what makes a nice smile. And we'll pick the tool. You know, uh, you might ask me to go cut out, cut down that oak tree. And if you give me a butter knife, I'm going to be at it a while. Okay, give me a chainsaw. I can do it pretty well. So that's kind of my general response to that is that, look, I'm I'm here in a professional capacity to advise you, uh, to give you my opinion of what I think is best for you, but also tell you why I think it's best for you. And I found that patients really, uh, you know, don't fight that very much. They go, oh, I see what you're talking about, and I didn't know that could be done. You know, the patients don't know. And so, you know, part of what I think our task will be is how do we get it out there, what we do? And my my personal reaction to this has been, uh, you know, I did a lot of lecturing in concert with Vince Kokich uh, Jr., some with Vince Jr., I mean, uh, Vince Sr., uh, some with Vince Jr. I spent half my life uh, either preceding a Kokich or being followed by a Kokich <laughs> on the podium. but. Anyway, the thought I had with Vince senior years ago, Vince was convinced that, and it was a bit of a visionary. He was sort of convinced that if orthodontists didn't start getting involved in dentistry, it was going to hurt us. And I began to realize that when I was the president of our state society, when I got a letter from the board of dental examiners wanting a list of all the things our assistants could and couldn't do. Well, you know what tree they're barking up. They're wanting us to you know, not have 10 assistants or whatever. And I got to think about it and I said, well, I'll tell you what, um, when you get me a letter from all the other seven uh, specialties of dentistry, then I'll think about it. <laughs> well, we don't want to know what's going on with them. Okay. Well, you know, it's just, you know, democracy works here. And so anyway, I hung up the phone and about a couple of days later, I, you know, you know, I picked up the phone I called the guy, who was the head of the board, who I knew well, and I mean, lived in the town about an hour and a half away, and I said, you know, can I come down have lunch with you? And he said, sure. Yeah, so I came down there, and I asked him, Lance, I said, okay, straight out, what is it about us that makes y'all mad? What is it about us that you don't like? Not me personally, but talking about orthodontists as a group, because yep. I already know you don't like me personally. <laughs> <laughs> And his answer just really chilled me. He said, you know, when you finish orthodontic training, you disappear. You're no longer in dentistry, you know, except for the occasional politician, but you don't come to our meetings. You don't know what we talk about. We don't do that. And I went, yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah, guys, absolutely right. And so I started then to, well, just Rick Robley asked me to lecture to the American Academy of Aesthetic Dentistry, which is, uh, a really high end organization. And, uh, I, you know, I was astonished at the things that I didn't know. Yeah. I was also, by the way, astonished at what they thought <laughs> we were and it wasn't good. Right. It was, right. You know, there were, most of them were the higher end guys, you know, understand the role of the Orthodox. but anyway, so I'm, I'm joined the AAED and have been a fellow. I'm on their journal and I quit publishing and, I've disappeared in orthodox literature for about eight years because I've been publishing in their literature. Okay, with the purpose of getting us back in the ball game. This right. is what we do. Right now, that was just my own personal choice.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, and I think that, you know, there are certainly are people that would say, you know, if some of these more straightforward cases are being treated by, uh, general dentists or, or by other, you know, non-specialist orthodontists, then perhaps we need to be thinking more about, you know, these interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary cases. Um, working, you know, they're they're, they're more adult cases or they're definitely in conjunction more with other dental specialists. Do you have any advice for orthodontists for these kind of cases and maybe how to set appropriate goals in terms of treatment outcomes?
1: Well, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the relationship you have with the the dentist. If you don't know the dentist, you've got to gauge the knowledge level of that particular person. Uh, And, you know, you practice, you talk to some were the brightest bulbs in the box. And you got some that uh, weren't too bright, you know, were a little dim uh, not to insult anybody, but that's the way it works. And so I generally try and feel out what the knowledge level of that person is. And is there a potential uh, for a good working relationship or uh, not? Some, you know, think they know a lot and want to tell you what to do. And then there are some that say, guide me, help me out here. And, you know, uh, what you try to get to, I think we all do. I have a cosmetic dental colleague of mine who I work with quite a bit who, uh, at a meeting said, you know, if I could get, you know, the patient to see an orthodontist before every veneer case, I'd be the happiest man on the planet. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, I've done in the past several years is I do a lot of my own cosmetic buildups of laterals and worn teeth and stuff like that because You know, I knew what the tooth was supposed to look like. I needed to know what the tooth looked like before I put the bracket on to put it somewhere. And what I tell the dentist is, I, you know, I do that not because I'm trying to take business away from you. I want to deliver a package to you with a bow wrapped around it that all you have to do is finish it in porcelain. Do it well. Right. And they really like that. They're at least the ones I work with quite a bit.
0: Yeah. You know, and we talked about how maybe the work product of orthodontists is this ability to diagnose and to think. And nowhere is that more true and more relevant than I think in these adult cases. Like you mentioned, in some of the adolescent cases, they're almost on cruise control, a lot of them. But, the, you know, it's these adult cases that sometimes I'm invigorated and excited by working on them. And sometimes I'm just frustrated and <laughs> sick of them uh, and would wish they weren't in my office. Um, but it certainly is. <laughs> where I feel like I'm doing some good and, and really solving a, a complicated problem is with these sorts of cases.
1: You know, just this last week we you know, it was one of those weeks from hell, you know, with adult patients. I mean, uh I, I literally at the end of two of the days that uh if I have to treat another adult, I'm going to shoot myself. <laughs> uh now having said that, you know, um why? Uh well, one uh was complaining about a space, and I was looking at it, and you've, been, you've probably been there, couldn't see it, flossed it. I'm like, I, I don't see the space. She goes, why am not blow air through it <laughs> like that? And I'm going, oh, my God. Uh, well, The only way for me to get rid of that is to cut your teeth and make square blocks out of them to where they're mortised together and they're rock solid, okay? But that's not going to look very good. And then, you know, typically the one that uh, you – Work hard, you get a nice result, but it's not great. It's not perfect because you can have a jaw advancement or I can do the best I can. Right. And it's a lot better. But then they go, but I've still got an overbite. Like, well, yeah, you know, you said you didn't want to do jaw surgery. Well, I don't want to do jaw surgery. Okay. so you're sitting there.
0: Yeah, that's when I tell them, oh, oh, I, you want, they want, you want the magic wand. I I left that in my other office. Yeah, uh, (laughs) my pixie dust is just, I left it in the drawer. Exactly. So I know, David, that you've done a lot of uh, in office courses for orthodontists that uh, they've come to your office. And I, and I assume that they come because, you know, they're hoping to improve their their skills and diagnosis and treatment. What are the problems that, that you know, clinical problems that orthodontists are hoping to solve when they come to your course? Are there are there kind of questions that you get over and over uh, and, and ways in which, you know, you think that orthodontists, you know, could learn something um, from a course like yours?
1: Well, you know, uh, I do the course once a year and there's some years I've skipped like this year. I'm trying to finish this book and I knew I just didn't have time to do it. Uh, may put one on at the end. Well, I am going to put one on at the end of the year. Uh, but I don't ever advertise it to speak of. Yeah. And it's always filled up yeah. through word of mouth and all that. And I kind of like that. I think the unique part of it is, all right, what do I teach? Well, um, it's, it's well organized and it's kind of a lot of material. But I think Mike Mayhew, when he took it, you know, at the end of the day, first day said, I heard the most interesting, Comment about this course, and this is the end of the first day. I said, "What's that?" He said, "This is the first time I believe I've been at a uh, orthodontic course where I have yet to see a bracket or a wire, <laughs> because I'm starting off with why, when, then what, right? Okay. Get get your order down is why, when, what, and what's the last thing to do? Because you know, all of us can put brackets on, not all of us can put wires on." But uh, knowing when to do it and, you know, where you're trying to place teeth, or can you even place teeth there? Uh, I, I know that there are people who are much more skilled with Invisalign than I am, but one of the things that maddens me with Invisalign is that if I want to bring two lateral incisors down to get smaller, I just can't seem to do that. <laughs> Tito Norris says he can do it, and I believe it. And I'm sure Jonathan and uh, Myes do too. But uh, I am just a klutz at doing that one. It's tough. I struggle with it as well. Well, uh, you know, I have, whenever I say that, I have all these guys come up and tell me how they do it, you know, and I go, everybody knows how to do it except me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think you're alone in that. Um, (laughs) When people come to your office, are there there things that they feel like they're struggling with clinically or that, uh, you know, kind of common questions or areas where you feel like orthodontists are kind of...
1: Facing the same problem over and over. You know, to be honest with you, I don't get a lot of questions because I think uh, there's um, maybe a little bit of the profit effect there. that They don't want to ask a question because they're embarrassed that, you know, maybe it's going to sound like a stupid question, you know, and, and as Prof would say, there isn't no such thing as a stupid question. You know what, I think probably most practicing orthodontists take out of the uh, course is the course goes on a Thursday or no, Friday and then Friday night we have a function out at my office and all my staff's there. now this is a practice management thing for me that that when I started in practice uh, like uh, Kickstart I mean you know it' was like I was given two weeks notice that I was now going to be a private practitioner. I didn't really yeah you know, I never really thought about it what how do you how do you run a practice? what do you do? And so um, I hired part-time lady and I went through a couple of employees and I asked my wife who worked for IBM and my wife was a, a systems engineer and very good at a job and people would come offer her four times her salary to quit IBM and come with them and of course, me being a guy, I'm always hey <laughs> <laughs> so when do we get the Mercedes you know and she would always turn it down and I finally, Said, I, you know, that's your decision. But why do you? What? Why? Don't you consider it? She goes, Look, I got good pay. I've got great benefits, and it's my family. Yeah, I'm. I'm. That's home for me, and that's the only job she ever held. So uh, I adapted or adopted in my mind that you know, I just look at how IBM operated then, not so much now. The things that were important to her and I'm sure women in Orthodox are probably going to jump on me, but but I don't think they would disagree that, that most of us, uh, you know, want to be secure. You know, we want to feel appreciated. We want to be taken care of. You know, we want our staffs to appreciate us, and we want them to take care of us. You know, we expect that out of them. And so what I decided was that one of the things I noticed about IBM was that they always had milestones that – if you had a baby when our first child was born, we had a silver cup from the president of IBM, like in New York. Now I'm sure he didn't have his wife wrap it for it, but you know the deal. It yep. was an acknowledgement of something and they had certain milestones. So what I did, I started in my office that if you uh, lasted 10 years working for Dr. Sarmer, which I thought was probably an insurmountable uh, thing, you got a strand of pearls. And if you lasted 20 years, then you would get um, your birthstone mounted however I chose to. And at 25 years, you would get a diamond. Well, I now have five diamonds working in my practice. That's awesome. Right. And I have uh, two more that are within two years of becoming diamonds. Um, and that's, I think, what most people that that night where the entire staff comes to my course not to the course, but they come that night because I want them there for people to be able to ask questions on, on, if you take my course, I want you to know that I walk the walk. I'm not just talking the talk. And you can ask the staff any question you want to. And, you know, the, and doctors will ask them, does he really do that? And they'll go, yeah, he does. You know, and that's uh, pretty good. But then I think they get that feeling like, how do you get them to come on a Friday night? You pay them a lot? No, I don't even pay them. They do it because they believe in this practice. They believe in Dr. Sarver. They believe in themselves and what they do. They are as excited about a patient getting a great outcome as I am. Uh, as you know, I, I do a lot of jaw surgery cases, and so I have a, a lady, Trisha who's been with me 33 years as a treatment coordinator who uh, is my surgical coordinator also. And Patients, uh, you know, she holds their hand through the whole process, and patients will come back to see her, not me. <laughs> <laughs> they want to see her, and so they all establish relationships, and so we encourage that, like all of us would. But um, you know, oh gosh, I talk. I was talking to Dovey Prero, who said, you know, I remember the first time I saw you lecture, and I said, well, do you remember anything I said?" And he said, "Oh yeah." I remember a couple of things I've got written down and up on my wall. I said, Oh really? Like what, you know, what (laughs) did I come out with? He said, I remember a slide you put up about, um, we hire hearts, not hands. And that's the way I've always believed that I can, I can teach them, you know, some of them struggle a little bit, but by and large, you want somebody that's got a big heart and relates to patients and wants to help that patient. And, wants to take that emergency call for you and all that sort of thing. So I think, you know, interestingly, that's as big a part of the course is just that uh, feeling of how it operates and the assurance that what I'm teaching them is actually what I do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I love that uh, answer. And I think it's so true. I actually, just this week, uh, my wife was at some of one of our son's uh, soccer games, and was talking with another one of the moms there who who i treat uh, her son mm. and she, and she said basically the same thing she said, "You know your husband is great, and we <laughs> like him." But but my son, who's a 12 year old boy, loves coming to the office because there's all of these assistants and they give him so much attention and they ask him how he's doing and they and they really just he 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 walks out of there. He's always so excited and, and validated. He feels important. And, uh, you know, to him, uh, you know, th- she says that that's. What you know? What we think of when we think of you know uh, your guy's office, and uh, and that's how I, I mean I would love it to be. I mean I I think I've got a, a reasonably good personality, but honestly, if I can hire these kind of superstar people, uh, not in terms of their clinical skills, but in terms of their personal skills, you know, to me that you know means we're doing something right.
1: Yeah, well, you know the the other thing about what you're saying is that your Google reviews probably are very similar to mine. You know, incredible staff and that's okay, too. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm kind of the afterthought. Uh, exactly. Really, you know, that's because th- they interface with the patients a lot more than we do because you and I are answering phones and answering questions and running around and all that sort of thing. So
0: we're going to get into our, our lightning round here in a minute. But before we do that, you you mentioned briefly, and, and I maybe wanted you to elaborate a little bit more. You talked about... um Avoiding debt and maybe some you know financial advice for uh, I guess practitioners really of all ages, but certainly newer graduates, you know share with our audience a little bit what we were, you were telling me about kind of your financial philosophies
1: Well, I think that, that well, what I shared with you was the uh, idea that my wife is uh, particularly what I term penurious, in other words, you know to pull a penny out of the wallet is like getting <laughs> a crowbar. Uh, But we both shared that sort of philosophy and to a degree. And uh, so when when I finished North Carolina, we decided that we would not live above her salary level for seven years. And we would plow the rest of it into investments because the power of compound interest, that if you put it away and forget it and you're not going to spend that, it grows incredibly in the stock market, you know, like from 1980 to 2000, for example, which is when my <laughs> son graduated from high school and was going to start college. He had more money than I had, you know, in a, in a trust. And so I was getting a loan one time for a, a an office renovation and I got a phone call from uh, one of the guys sitting on the board of the bank who had dated my sister in college, you know, And he wanted to see how she was doing and all that. And so, but I said, so why are you, why, why are you really calling me? He said, well, uh, we, you, I sit on the board of this bank, you know, and you're applying for a loan and they were handing out the folders and they handed yours and it had one sheet of paper in it and it had (laughs) four lines on it. Cause I've never had a car payment. I've never had my wife and I always said, if you can't buy it, don't, if you don't have the money, don't buy it. Um, and so today, you know, there's this crushing debt kind of thing going on. And I, I don't think it's all, all entirely. I think it's too easy to borrow money. Now, uh, when I was coming along, you, it was hard to borrow money. Uh, particularly when you had no income, which is why I worked while I was in school was, uh, so that I could accumulate some money to, uh, be able to have more than just nothing. So anyway, you know, what I was sharing with you is that, that, um, like all things, there's, uh, some involvement of the individual that you don't buy your Mercedes as your first car. My philosophy on that was I didn't want to drive. I live in the neighborhood I practice in, probably like you do. Yep. And so I didn't want to be driving a Mercedes around, you know, so everybody could point at me and I didn't drive a nice car until I was in my fifties. Actually, I drove carpool for 12 years. That's a winner. Carpool? (laughs) Carpool. Yeah. Tom Pitts asked me one time, said, David, what do you think the best marketing idea you ever had was? I said, oh, hell, Tom, driving carpool. (laughs) He was like, carpool? I said, yeah, you're right in there with all the moms and and Who's that? Oh, that's the orthodontist, you know. So, I had a great marketing tool. I heard from his son about six weeks later, and he said, thanks a lot. And I said, what? And he goes, Dad doesn't get in until eight thirty now because he's driving carpool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like yeah. that. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that's 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 some good advice. I think that uh, you know we're definitely at a time where. You know, orthodontics, I think, still can be a very, I guess, financially uh, rewarding profession. But there certainly are these landmines.
1: There there are going to be some limits, I think, coming up, you know. And and actually, it reminds me of a comment. My, My lab guy who's worked for me since he was 19 years old and hardworking guy, good Catholic, has four boys. He's put them through Catholic school, which he had to pay for. He's put them through college. And he did it all sitting back in that lab making retainers and doing all that stuff I mean, just pounding away at day after day, seven days a week. If it was needed, he's in there. And he made a comment to me that was really so true. He said, you know what they need to do these days is colleges. You know, if you go to get a loan, um, they should analyze it just like a house or a car, your ability to pay will, Your degree in psychology from Harvard really pay for itself, and he said, "I I think we're we're getting to a point where colleges are going to have to show some potential for a person to uh, deserve the loan." Yeah, my my personal feeling is that the
0: schools should be. Responsible for a certain percentage of any defaulted student loans, it should come back on these schools uh, rather than on taxpayers, and that they should maintain some long-term uh, responsibility for all of these graduates that they're saddling with all of these uh, student loans. But that, that's my own my own
1: pet pet solution. Well, the odds of that happening are about like uh, my vessels not hardening with age. I mean, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. That, that's a non-starter, but. But
0: uh, anyway, before we finish up here, we're going to do this lightning round. I'm going to ask you eight quick questions and uh, get some quick responses. How does that sound? Sure. What's your go-to treatment for full-step class twos?
1: Um, It depends on the vertical relationship. If it's a long face, then I'm going to be a little more towards good old high pull headgear. If it's a short face patient and it's important to gain facial height, I'm going to do cervical headgear. Old-fashioned stuff. But I'm choosing it for a reason, and I explained to the patient why. And then, like a lot of people, by and large, uh, Herbst or something like that. I found some of the stuff that we buy uh, is sort of like the school argument. With it's very expensive compared for uh, what you really get out of it. I'm not going to mention any products, but there are a number of products I don't buy because they're not worth the price you're paying for it. Sure. Uh, so, sure. so I would say you know Herbst would probably be the most used. Uh, But I still use a lot of headgear for not only controlling a vertical problem, but uh, augmenting a vertical problem. What's your standard retention protocol? That would be lower fixed three to three uh, to each tooth, not the bar. Uh Uh, And my lab does it. We do indirect bonding and put them on there so we can be as accurate as possible. And usually, uh, you know, because I do full bind, I don't have band space to close. Anymore, uh, I do more of the Essex retainers, but I still uh, tend towards more sturdy appliance. Here, here are the two problems with the Essex retainer is, uh, one, uh, they have an occlusal. You know, they're, they're, they're in there yep. between the teeth. Yep. Teeth, you know, profit studies show that teeth erupt at night. Okay, and so they're sleeping in it at night, and you got this thing in the way, keeping them from erupt erupting. So it's sort of like when I'm finishing the visaline cases, I'll, you know, they'll go, I like it. All right. Everything's good. And so do do back teeth hit and they go, no. Okay. And so what I do is I just trim it off canine to canine, let them settle. Oh yeah. That feels a whole lot better. You know, they didn't really realize it because they were so used to having the things in their mouth. Uh, so really uh, it, it depends. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, we've, we maybe hit on this already, but your role models or mentors in orthodontics. Well, you know, profit, certainly. Yep. Um, and, you know, gosh, I've got so many friends in the uh, people that uh, – it's kind of interesting. You know, one of my best friends in the world, period, is Jim McNamara, and he and I, uh, we don't talk about orthodontics. <laughs> we just don't talk about that. Uh, Jim Greer, who's in Lexington, Kentucky, Rusty Long, who uh, ran the Lancaster Cleft Palate Clinic. We, we almost never talk about orthodontics. When we get together, got plenty of, you know, we can talk about that plenty. Uh, But what I get from them is uh, a feeling of how to be, Mm -hmm. you know, just how do you, how do you behave? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you act? You know, obviously I'm the worst one in the group. Um, But um, I think that like most of us, my father had a great influence. Both parents did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think really not as far as orthodox is concerned, but, you know, to me, a lot of orthodox is how you are, how are you perceived, you know, by patients and by staff. And that's uh, a lot of its leadership. And then my dean in dental school was, uh, ended up being the president of the university and he's in, in oral surgery was a huge name and uh, very influential in how i sort of developed what is your favorite orthodontic product
0: or instrument? Something that you wouldn't want to practice without?
1: Well, that's a good one. Uh, uh, standard answers, I suppose, would be you know brackets, wires. But you know, for me, uh, computer imaging. Huh? Yeah, uh, it is. Nobody uses it, but <laughs> I use it on every new patient, every consult, because we're talking about things that you can't verbalize. Right.
0: Yeah. I know you've published on this if people want to go and look up those papers I know that uh, you, you've kind of described this method but you're right i don't I don't think it's you know being used probably
1: to the extent and the effectiveness that you use it oh I don't think people really understand what to use it for uh, let's say for example uh, uh, oh gosh I had a, a start last week that they'd come in for a second opinion I didn't know of course I you know at this point in my career I'm usually the fourth opinion it came in and, and the kid was real gummy and and just had a paradigm biotype that was real thick and I said look before I put the braces on you got a nice smile art I want them the size of edges to stay where they are but you know she had uh, delayed passive eruption and so her teeth were short and I said so before I put the braces on I want to take a laser and lengthen all the teeth and then I'll put the braces on and I just showed her with a computer you know how what that would look like and she was like nobody's nobody's ever said anything about that that looks wonderful <laughs> being sold, I mean you know, but it's it's not just a selling thing it's a it's that communication and information so uh imaging nobody nobody it just was i I have a slide where I have a rocket sitting on the launching pad with smoke coming out the bottom, like I thought I was going to change the world with that one, and it never <laughs> got off the pad uh, but uh, I think just for a lot of reasons uh yeah. it just didn't get appreciated.
0: Okay, What's the best vacation you've ever taken?
1: Uh, well, I'm trying to think of the last time I took a real vacation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say, oh, probably my wife and I both. Uh, it, it was, I lectured in Athens, and then we went to Santorini for four days. And we rented a Airbnb or whatever you call it, a uh, villa. Yeah. And they're, you know, burrowed out of the side of the volcanic ash stone, whatever it is. And it was, you know, I, I mean, this, my radius of travel was less than a mile for four days. Yeah. And uh, we had two of our best friends with us. And it was just, you know, I think most of li- what we remember about life, uh, for example, one of my favorite places to go is Australia. I've been there 12 times. Well, why? It's the people. Yeah. Have you ever met an Australian or a Canadian you don't like? <laughs> They're pretty
0: kind. I, I actually lived in Australia for a little bit. I know. I know what you're talking you? about. Yeah.
1: I mean, everybody's your mate. Yep. Yeah. And so uh, the the ones I remember are really the people and not the places. What's one great book that you've read recently? Well, I'm a World War II history buff, and you know, so right now I am uh, reading the Age of Eisenhower, which not was not during the war. It was his presidency, and the. Cold War and the things he had to deal with. I had a uh how my interest got started in that and I had a uh mom's first cousin was one of Patton's generals in World War Two. Uh and he was General Stanhope B. Mason the third, sir. Oh wow. Uh when I first got back to Birmingham, this is where he had retired to. And so, you know, I would go over and you know, he'd he'd call on the phone and Bowery, my wife would answer and he'd go he'd go, You people come to dinner six PM Thursday night. And wasn't like, can you come? Or you know, It was like, you people be here. And so we would be there. And then he and I would – and I was responsible for making it old-fashioned. And I had to crush the – you know, he had a ritual for me to go through. But anyway, he would pull out all his uh, War College slides and talk about stuff. So just to make it a shorter story, I know this is supposed to be rocket round, but <laughs> asking this question, I said, General Mason, what's it like to make decisions? that you know that you may be sending 25,000 men out and less than half of them may come out alive. What's that like? How do you make that decision? And he just looked at me, he was a West pointer. He looked at me, he goes, you make a decision. He said, if you don't make a decision, they know where you are. They'll get you. If you make the wrong decision, they have to react to it and split their forces to figure out where you're going. And if you're going in the right direction, you got them anyway. You know, but the worst thing you can do is not make a decision. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. That wasn't a book, but that one. <laughs> <laughs> what what bracket system are you currently using? I use two things. Um, you know, uh, of course, been involved with Insignia Project for a long time, which fits my genre of customization and individualization of treatment plans. Uh, but the other is titanium orthos because main reason, well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the main ones is I did uh, when it first came out, uh, I, you know, did a in-house study where we were measuring bracket failures and staff members and a lot of metrics. And after 90 days, it turns out we had, you know, 1% failure on titanium and 8 to 9% on everything else. Interesting. War, you know, battle one. I just went, okay, if I'm not losing brackets, then that's efficient. Is this an 022 or a Roth or what kind of prescription do you use? No, I use 18 slot and, and, you know, you'd almost have to go back and read the literature as to Andrejko's theories behind orthos and so forth. But as I wrote in the Graeber chapter one time, you know, we have uh, arch shapes that are uh, arcane mathematical formulas. They're symmetrical. They're an egg. They're a parabola. They're all these things. But none of them are shaped like a human arch. And what Craig did was scan a whole bunch of people and come up with what the average arch form of a human being was. Well, that just makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. You know, And it turns out that uh, the arch shape on uh, orthos widens the intercanine, I mean the premolar width, but not the intercanine width. Now, we do know that the expansion of canine width is inherently unstable. Of course, everything's unstable for that matter. Uh, but that premolar expansion uh, was, and I'll give credit to Ellen McGall at University of Illinois, lots of studies appears to be have much more chance for stability, but I'll finish one story. I was lecturing at a biennial angle and, uh, I showed my wife's case where I'd treated her with orthosin and had gotten really nice buckle corridors and all these nice things. And so at the end they were asking questions and this guy stands up, well-known ortho, I says, David, uh, appreciate, you know, nice lecture, blah, blah. But, I think you uh, did your wife a disservice. Oh, yeah. And I said, well, I probably did a disservice when I convinced her to marry me. (laughs) What are you thinking about? And he said, well, you expanded her. And so you've doomed her to a lifetime of retention. And I said, "Uh, you know, in reality, if you look at, uh, you know, long-term studies of people who've never been treated, there is nothing that is stable. Okay. So if stability is the most important thing to you, The answer is don't treat anybody because the most stable thing that walks into your office is the new patient.
0: Our last question here, David, what is one area of orthodontics that you want to learn more about in 2019?
1: Well, I think I need to learn more about liners because that seems (laughs) to be the direction that everything's going. Yeah. Getting, getting those lateral incisors moving. Well, if I can just do that, I'll be the happiest guy on the planet. But I think that that's a necessary thing in my mind that, I'm not the kind of person who discounts things cause I didn't think of it. You know, actually uh, many years ago I was asked by a hedge fund manager and this is like 20 years ago. What do I think about this new company would be worth investing in? I said, yeah. And I, he said, Oh, so would you, would you be an investor? And I said, no. And he said, I don't get it. And I said, well, I don't want to uh, contribute to something that might lead to the destruction of my profession. <laughs> and, you know, the other thing was I just, you know, you just that was 20 years ago. You just didn't know what the impact was going to be. And so he said, well, so if you were CEO of uh, Invisalign, what would you do? What would your business model be? so it was clear. I'd have it in Walmart, you know, in kits if I could.
0: Here we are 20 years later.
1: I never thought it would happen. <laughs> of course, I never thought I'd have uh, 35-year employees either because I didn't think I'd work that well. right right well this has been a
0: fantastic interview Uh, i want to thank you dr sarver for your time this evening for coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences um and your expertise with us um if people you know want to get a hold of you or um want to kind of learn more about you what's the best way for them to to reach you
1: uh, they can reach me through my website, uh, sarverortho.com, or my email address is Sarver, sarverd, S-A-R-V-E-R-D, as in David, at sarverortho.com. And if I don't get right back to you when you send me a case to give you advice on, be patient. <laughs> yeah. And try to, try not to send dr sarver too many cases he's he's, he's he's got a lot of projects going so. yeah i got plenty to do
0: <laughs> all right well well thanks a lot talk again soon and uh and we'll, we'll see you later this
1: is a good thing you're doing I, I appreciate it
0: thank you for listening to the elevate orthodontics podcast for more episodes subscribe on itunes or visit our website at elevate orthopodcast.com tune in next week for another great episode